Hello and welcome to the Open Borders edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Although this week we are zooming back, we are not going to bother ourselves with the picayune details of the news of the week. Um, we have bigger fish to fry. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I am in Washington, D.C. this week, and we are joined by Brian Kaplan of George Mason University. How's it going? Who is a I don't know. Can I just call you a professional contrarian? Sure, I love it. It's um, You have a new book out. We're going to talk about three of your books in this episode. It's going to be a monster episode. But the new book and the, if I dare say so, by far the easiest to read, or certainly the easiest <laughs> on the eyes to read, is called... Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. You, you have made an argument in comic book form that the United States in particular and countries in general should just open their borders. We are going to talk about that and whether it's a good idea. But you didn't just write that book. You wrote two other books, which we're going to talk about. What are those? Uh, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Why Being a Great Parent is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think, and also The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. So if you think that we should have some control over who comes into our country, if you think that having universities is a good thing. If you think that maybe you don't want to have lots of kids, this is Brian's attempt to change your mind on these things. And it's it's going to be a rollicking show, all of which is coming up right now on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So, Brian, let's start with your newest book, which is a comic book. Graphic novel. A gr- well, it's not very much a novel. Yes. So you think of it as a documentary comic book. Uh, so it's called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. And in this book, I combine my love of graphic novels with my fascination with immigration to create a product. And there's that you. Can, yeah. you, are, you, are, you are a drawn character in this book. I making... am, I, I'm the narrator. You know, just like in a lot of documentaries, you make yourself the narrator of your own documentary. And that's what I did in this book. Okay. So you, you your thesis in this book is that we should open up our borders completely and just allow anyone who wants to come into the country to come into the country. Yeah, unless they belong in jail. Have you found that people get persuaded by this? 
I've persuaded a whole lot of people, but of course there's a whole lot more people that I haven't persuaded. Um, you know, this is an idea that on the one hand, it has a lot of appeal to people who like elegant simplicity. <laughs> and of course it also is, it has a lot of appeal to people who are highly logical Vulcan type people where you can say, well, look, why exactly is it that we want to keep people out? Uh, but you know what I, a lot of what I try to do in the book is just to broaden the appeal. I mean, part of it is I want to broaden it from you know make the readers everyone from active researchers on immigration all the way down to seven year olds. This is the only thing I've ever written where my little kids were looking over my shoulder and were actually curious about what I was doing. That's awesome. So I mean, I have been trying to get people to give this book to kids. So you know, Christmas is coming up. Kid, every every kid <laughs> needs one. So um, let, let's let's do a quick like round robin on priors here i've always well not always i i yeah, pretty much always have been quite sympathetic to this idea but most people are not so emily what was your view of this idea like before you read the book i guess i had never actually thought about actually having fully open borders i thought i i'm definitely one of the people who think more immigration is a good thing but it never occurred to me that we should just be like a free-for-all. And then I read in this graphic novel and realized, oh, we used to have open borders. It was fine. That's how my grandparents got here. And I was sort of pushed to agreeing with the thesis. All right. Anna? So I came into this, I'll be perfectly honest, pretty much how I came out of it, which is <laughs> that I intellectually think this is all correct. I think there there is no way that you can argue that open borders wouldn't be fantastic for people, for the economy, in theory. Agreed. However, I, I think because people have a tendency to mess up economic models, that's where my concern comes in. And I did find the book really um, persuasive in a lot of ways, but I still have those concerns. Okay, so let's start with the the headline which is basically, what is it, like $2 or $3 trillion, which is sitting on the sidewalk waiting for Oh, a for lot more than that. It's more like, it like $90 trillion a year. $90 trillion. $90 trillion a year would be a mid-range estimate for what we would have had if we'd had open borders the whole time. So basically the idea is if every country in the world just opened up all of their borders tomorrow, the world would get $90 trillion richer pretty quickly? Uh, well, so the pretty quickly is less clear. I mean, I, I, so I would think, you know, it could easily take, you know, 50 years before we're realizing 75% of those gains just because people don't instantly pack up and move. I mean, so, you know, like, you know, usually these estimates, they're basically like long run estimates after everything's adjusted and everybody's moved to the place where they want to move and things have settled down. But again, the logic is just there's so much fantastic human talent that is trapped right now in low productivity countries. And you really can transform a person's productivity just by moving them from one country to another. And, the, and just to be clear, the, the reason why it might take a long time to realize most of those gains is precisely that open borders wouldn't mean massive overnight influx of migration and that people naturally tend to stay near where they grew up. And you can look at this in Italy where you mm -hmm. have massive economic disparities within the country, even though obviously it's had open borders for a very long time. And the migration does happen, but it happens super, super slowly. Right. I mean, here's the thing is when you're writing a book like this, you get a new idea of the meaning of massive. All right. Now, 
I think actually the amount of immigration that would come if you under open borders, even in the short term, in the year or two, almost every normal human being would consider it massive because there'd probably be 10 or 20 million people that would move in the course of just a couple of years. Uh, these would probably be people already have family members here or friends here that are ready to, that are immediately ready to help them hit the round running. Uh, but the kinds of massive that the book's talking about is getting into the realm of a billion, right? So like over the cent over a century, you could easily have a billion people that would want to come into the uh, United yes. States. Yeah, just the United States. So the United States yes. currently has a population of what three hundred forty million, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, that's right. So, so you you treble the population of the United States, right? Which again sounds crazy until you look at history and realize trebling population of countries is not that strange. Actually, the United States has done it many times before. The idea that like this is the last tripling, we can't triple again. <laughs> it's like why not? I mean, especially if you've ever driven across this country or just flown over at night and just realized, wow, this country is almost totally empty. Like there's tons of room well, physically for people. I, I think that that's that's one of the areas, though, is that I think that we're we're dealing kind of with averages here because if we had a tremendous influx of people, they probably wouldn't go to Idaho or the middle of the country. They, they most likely would go to the cities where you have mm -hmm. the greatest opportunity to mm -hmm. make a lot of money. And while I think immigration is great, I think we should have way more immigration. But I think it's hard to argue that there couldn't be some downsides to that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So one of the main things I try to say in the book is I've got a lot of downsides for you. I'm very happy to discuss downsides, but it's the kind of thing where once you if you accept that you're we're losing like 90 trillion dollars a year, you could list a thousand downsides of 10 billion each and you're still nowhere close to saying this is a bad idea. I mean, you know, also, I mean, in my mind, a lot of what's going on in this book is that there's a way that things get filtered through the media where you just say, look, there's three problems here. We can't do it. It's like, look, why? So those three problems, let's put a price tag on them and just compare them to the gains and then see whether that really is actually whether they're even comparable. And like in the end, I just say they're, they're just not. I mean, I'd actually be, you know, say something even more specific than what you said. So, um, you know, not only are people likely to go to cities, they're likely to go to areas with cheap housing and where you're allowed to build a lot more cheap housing. So like Texas, Texas is going to grow by leaps and bounds. On the other hand, you know, Bay Area, New York. Like, you know, if they don't deregulate their housing, then I think it's a place that's not very appealing for immigrants just because the housing costs are so astronomical and would be even more so if you had a lot more people trying to move in. One thing I was curious about, um, you make the case in the book that immigration, like Felix was just saying, it happens relatively slowly. But has there been much thought put into what is going to happen with climate change and the issue of climate refugees? Mm -hmm. Because I believe all the projections show that we're going to see a lot more people needing to leave their countries and this urgently. Is, yeah, this is the, the thing which was in the back of my head all the time I was reading this book is mm. that we have gone from the, the open borders are becoming like a moral imperative. Like you make mm -hmm. a really strong economic case for them. Mm -hmm. But when people are dying just by dint of where they are born, and if there are a billion people, you know, living on the Indo-Gangetic plain and that becomes uninhabitable, those billion people are going to have to live somewhere else or die. And just on a moral level, you can't just leave them to die. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Of course, you know, we have a lot more war refugees right now where we where we there's no speculation about how bad things are going to get. You can just see they're right there. They're like, you know, there are people living in horrible places and horrible conditions. I mean, I remember like around the time of the Syrian refugee crisis, I was writing about how within a country when there's a disaster coming, we evacuate people in order to save lives. Whereas when there's a war, the main thing is let's prevent the evacuation. Let's keep them where they are. We don't want them here. 
And again, to me, this mentality is just so strange. And again, it's also one where where you know, ultimately make the problem worse. If people can plan ahead and get out before things are very or dire, then you know, like they may they can again hit the ground running. They you know they're able to leave with their assets and they can prepare conditions. Whereas if you make people wait to the last minute, then you really do get a very scary situation. I guess I'm just wondering if, as the number of climate refugees increases and puts more pressure on the system, if the argument that open borders is okay because immigration moves slowly is a little dinged up because immigration is going to be moving. Well, I mean, the, I mean, quickly, economically, economically, you get more benefit if it moves quickly. Yeah, right? yeah of course. I mean, you'll, you'll minus the adjustment costs. So, you know, like if you have so many people that you can't drive in the streets because they're clogged with people, then it's a different story. But again, of course, that's getting very far from any likely scenario. Again, mm-hmm. just to be, just to be clear, I, you know, I'm not someone saying that there's not going to be a lot of immigration. I'm saying that the ultimate amount is so astronomical that we shouldn't expect to get a large percentage of that huge amount overnight. But still, in terms of the amount of immigration that we'd be getting, even in the first 10 years, I think it could easily be 50 million people. I'm just someone who's happy to get 50 million more people. Okay. So, but one thing I want to bring in here is that we seem to kind of be talking without acknowledging the political reality of what often happens when you have an enormous amount of immigration. And I, I don't think this is a good thing, what I'm about to say, but it's just, just the reality is that what often ends up happening, at least especially recently we've been seeing, is you have destabilized governments, you have the growth of far-right parties. You know, right now even isn't even a ton of immigration, but I mean, in South Africa, you have people from Zimbabwe getting killed. So I think it's, even though, yes, in a perfect world, both ethically and in almost every other way, this is great. In the real world, these people are very, the people kind of we're talking about are very vulnerable. And so I think as a policy prescription, I'd be a little nervous about that because you're potentially putting people in a tremendous amount of danger. I know the argument would be, well, they're already in danger. But I I think that you, if you're looking historically at what tends to happen when you have rapid amounts of immigration, there are some very real consequences. Yeah. I mean, so like all those consequences you mentioned are true. I just think that when you really calm down and don't think like a journalist and instead think like a philosopher, you realize that these costs are nothing or they're so small compared to the gains. It just isn't reasonable to try to stop it. I mean, to me, when people talk about the rise of far right movements, my concern is, well, yes, that would be terrible if they stopped immigration. On the other hand, if all they do is complain, then I don't see that it's actually that bad of a problem. So, you know, like I often argue with my colleague and dear friend Tyler Cowen, and he says, you know, like, you know, like you're wrong, Brian, there's going to be this backlash. And I say, well, like, as long as the immigrants keep coming, then I'm not that worried about these other these other things. It's like it's like exactly what is they're doing other than restricting immigration. If they restrict that, then there's a problem. So if you say that we need to go and moderate it so that we get more in the long run. Um, that's just something where I'd like to see evidence because I don't really see that there's there's my, my view on, on this question is really a question of the relative weight of suffering in the United States versus suffering in say Bangladesh. And you can say that if a large number of Bangladeshis come to the United States because they're climate refugees, they would be treated very badly and they would have a standard of living, which is unacceptably low by current American standards. And that might be true. The question is, if that standard of living is unambiguously better than the standard of living they would have had in Bangladesh, is there is a, a temptation, which I think should be probably resisted, to say, well, so long as they're suffering in Bangladesh, it's not our problem and we shouldn't need to worry about mm-hmm. it. But if they're suffering 
in the United States. It is our problem. We should worry about it. Therefore, we shouldn't let them into the United States. And that move, I think you're right, Ryan, is philosophically extremely problematic. You know, it's this extreme narcissism that people have where it's not really the suffering that bothers many people. It's that I had to see the suffering, which, again, is it's very relatable. So, like, knowing there's a homeless problem is very different from actually seeing a homeless person, especially after you had a, ni- a nice night enjoying your dinner. And then you say, oh, my God, there's someone who's actually really having a really having a hard time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I say this is just this is the kind of thing you really need to steal yourself against and just realize that. You know, like you know, the moral issue is the other you know, is the other person not having a good life. It's not that it bothers you to actually have to experience it. I think the other thing to say about the the so called like risk of backlash and the rise of sort of far right propaganda about how immigration is bad is that just on a moral level, it doesn't seem like that's a good reason to stop doing immigration. And also, I feel like a lot of that backlash and the anti-immigration propaganda comes from people who actually, and I think Brian makes the argument in his book, it comes from people who actually don't even live near immigrants. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like a polit- it's a it's a rhetoric of fear and and ignorance. And like even you could see it in Minneapolis where the the president just spoke and like said terrible things about Somali refugees. But the reality is a lot of Somali refugees live there and like one even got elected. To Congress, like it's it's like a positive story, basically that he's like using to further his own agenda, and I feel like that agenda shouldn't drive immigration policy, even though it does have some obvious downsides. But let me ask hate crimes. Let me let me ask that question specifically, which is if immigration is such an a good thing, both economically and morally, why is it so universally unpopular? Right. So, you know, a lot of it is just human beings are very tribal. And so, you know, they just focus on, you know, they identify with a certain group and then everyone outside, it's just very natural for people to think of them not just as an outsider, but as a potential enemy. We can see the same thing in international trade where people tend to think of imports as a bad thing, even though, you know, the logic of it, well, wait a second, you think we should export lots of stuff and import nothing? And why would we do that? That's just the same as giving our stuff away for free. But, you know, the idea that foreigners are interacting with you in order to take advantage of you or worse. It just seems to come very naturally to human beings. It's a pretty good evolutionary story that when we were hunter-gatherers, when another group of hunter-gatherers shows up on the savanna, it is naive to say, oh, great, we'll just trade with them and it'll all be wonderful because like, under the, those are very violent times and the other tribe really might go and murder you and yourself right before dawn while you're sleeping. And on top of it, it's a very zero-sum kind of economy. There's a fixed stock of animals you're hunting. And it's, you know, we have these emotions that are just so irrelevant to the modern world and just so misleading. But again, this is you know, hardly the only way in which it's so. Just think about how much people care about what strangers think of them, even though they're strangers and they'll never encounter them again. This is something that we picked up uh, when we were living in small tribes and where other people's opinions really mattered because we were living with the same 20 or 40 people for our entire lives. You know, fast forward to the modern world when the opinions of strangers are as irrelevant to you as almost anything can be, and yet we still care, right? And I think a lot of maturity is saying, all right, I'm going to just calm down and remember that I'm not living in a tribe right now, 40 people, I'm in a modern world, and if total strangers laugh at my shirt, it really doesn't have any effect on me at all. I will, I will say to the podcast listeners out there who cannot see Brian's shirt, that it, <laughs> it is a laughable shirt. <laughs> So I, I, I want to I bring up one other one other issue. I think a lot of the kind of extrapolations about what the economic effects would be kind of 
paint this in a way that I would question a little bit because it seems to suggest as though you're going to have these economic benefits that are going to be relatively evenly spread. And my concern, because of like how history has kind of shown that what would end up happening is that you'd have immigrants who would come who wouldn't have any rights. They wouldn't be allowed to vote. They probably wouldn't get benefits. It would make it less likely that the countries would be able to have a kind of broad social safety net. And then you'd have a large pool of people without rights that companies could then have a nice pool of very, very cheap labor. And my concern is that then you'd create a lot of wealth, but a lot of that wealth would simply go to a small number of corporations, especially if you have a weakened government because you don't have borders. And much less democracy because a much lower proportion of the right. population would be allowed to vote. Obviously, I mean, I'm I'm not only in favor of open borders or at the very least much more open borders. I'm also a big fan in favor of all residents being allowed to vote. I don't understand the reason why only citizens should vote. But I think that Anna is right that realistically, if you have a large wave of immigration, a bunch of those immigrations are not going to be a bunch of those immigrants are going to be sort of democratically excluded. Right. So I guess there's two issues here. One is in terms of what how we should expect the large increase in wealth to wind up getting to wind up being distributed. And there I say we have numerous historical examples of large increases in output and 100 percent of them have been broadly shared. Industrial revolution did not just benefit people that were running factories or capitalists. Instead, they benefited almost anyone who is uh, wearing clothing or eating food or using transportation or living in, in modern buildings. Uh, you know, vaccinations do not primarily benefit companies that come up with vaccines. They primarily benefit the people that get vaccinated. The Internet does not primarily benefit computer programmers. Uber does not primarily benefit Uber drivers. Uber, the corporation, still hasn't made any money as far as I know. So, I mean, like we actually have a long track record of seeing what happens when you have a very large increase in production. And the way that it always works out is that it winds up being widely shared just because when you increase production that much, like what's going to happen? Like you can't just have all the gains going to a small number of people. When you have such a large increase in the amount of stuff, the price, prices are going to go down. In terms of you know the democratic effects – I mean, this is one where I would say it's you know it's complicated. I mean, there, you know, there are reasons to be concerned about a large number of people coming and voting in a very different way from the way that people in your country normally do. Especially if your country is pretty functional and their countries aren't, you might very well be worried. Maybe they're going to vote to go and turn it into a place that is a lot like their home country. This is a lot of what I do in the book, just to see is it really true that immigrants want to go and vote to turn the, uh, turn America into, into Venezuela? And I don't see very much evidence along those lines. But in the same, at the same time, I can understand why people would be nervous. So just the fact that you know if people need to wait for it, uh, in terms of like how bad is it to not be able to vote? Uh, well, there are enormous numbers of immigrants to the Gulf monarchies who seem really happy to go there, and you know it's a huge improvement in their lives, and they can't vote. Um, you know, is it is it less than optimal? Yes, but is it the kind of thing where? I would say it's reasonable to think, well, maybe it's it's just not good that they're coming. I just think that that's uh, just you know really missing missing the picture of like the you know, reason why Kuwait can have eighty five percent foreigners. A lot of it really is that they don't have much influence over the government, and so the people there just aren't so worried about letting them in. And they come and they really are able to transform their lives just by working in Kuwait for a few years. You can be in a rural village of Pakistan, just work as a waiter in Kuwait for a few years and come home and you're the richest man in your village. It's it is 
Okay, but those workers have are, are are in very very poor conditions. J- just to be fair, I mean, like this is yeah, an v- issue because yeah, yeah very very I, poor by our standards, but awesome by the standards of Pakistan. So, like as to why we should be thinking this is a bad thing just because we wouldn't want to do it. I don't know. So I think that this is getting to an, another issue where we're basically arguing that everyone should be leaving the country or not. I, or many, many, many people should be leaving the countries where they are. No, no, and no, I, wait. No, no one's saying they should be leaving the countries. Like this is, but they should have the ability to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, so then I think that that brings up the other question of, well, why isn't there also just more development in those countries? So you have more competition between nations because this is my other fear of just like kind of consolidating wealth and power. And like I'm the resident capitalist on this show, but I think you can also see what happens when you start to really divorce capitalism from democracy. And if you start to get these situations, and we do see this in Gulf countries, where you have workers who have zero rights. Yeah, I mean, are they slightly better off than they would have been before? Okay, but they're never going... Five times is better off? (laughs) But I also, I I worry, I think Anna's making a good point about what happens also to the countries which are exporting people. And we've seen this in Portugal. We've seen this in Greece. You know, you have freedom of movement within the EU, seen it with Romania. You wind up, the most economically productive people wind up leaving those countries. And while it's good for the population of Europe as a whole, there's a real sense in which it's not good for the countries who are losing all of their most productive people. Right. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that has been studied quite closely. In theory, of course, it's possible. But in practice, there are so many other benefits that go back to the home country. So remittances, most obviously. But a lot of times what happens is someone goes to another country, they learn how to run a business well, and then they return and set the business up. I mean, in my graphic novel, I go over what I think is probably the very best example of this. So in 1902, there's a Supreme Court case that effectively rules that the U.S. will have open borders with Puerto Rico. All right. Now, there was a hurricane a couple of years ago, which slightly messes up my example. But, <laughs> you know, the hurricanes are not to blame or the you know, immigration does not cause hurricanes or anything like that. So, I mean, if you go and take a look at Puerto Rico, yes, it's poorer than Mississippi, but it's virtually the richest country in or richest, you know, richest island in the entire Caribbean. And you know, a lot of it just seems that it's because, you know, by, you know, by allowing people to leave, not only to get remittances, but you also get great economic connections between Puerto Rico and the U.S., which have transformed the entire place. You know, it's very reasonable to think Puerto Rico would just would be basically like the Dominican Republic in the absence of this uh, special relationship with the U.S., so, I mean, it really – it's not just that large numbers of people leave, but they do, but it also creates new and special economic connections. So, I mean, it sort of I just seems like – So, yeah, wait, one, one second, yeah. though. One yeah. second, though. In Puerto Rico, you currently – one of the biggest issues you have in Puerto Rico is the fact that they're just losing population. Year mm-hmm. after year, they're losing population. And yeah, part of that of reason is because the, the – the industries that were developed in Puerto Rico were not great for the Puerto Ricans. And they were they were often just essentially not entirely tax dodges, but to a certain extent. And then when tax laws changed, they became less useful. And so they, they've left. And so I, I still, this goes still, back Puerto, to my idea. Puerto like Rico's we're talking awesome compared to its neighbors. Uh, it sure looks like, you know, like, like you know, people living in Puerto Rico seem way better off because of the fact they have an open border with, with the U.S. No, and, and I'll agree with that. I mean, like in the sense that. I'm not saying that more immigration would be bad. I think more immigration would be a wonderful thing. I, you know, however, I, I think we're still talking about this in a type of ideal universe that is not taking into account 
the reality of how wealth tends to be distributed. And I'm still unclear of why, if you had all of this wealth being created, but you don't really seem you're not going to, but people aren't who are often creating this wealth are not going to have any, often probably not even be able to vote. Why you wouldn't just get a situation that is a much more extreme version of what we have now. And that that's what worries me. That's what I, I, I wanted to go back to it. I'm glad you brought it up because it does seem like if we opened our borders without really carefully thinking about how we're going to treat immigrants, then we wind up um, essentially importing higher inequality because you're importing a workforce that while technically better off here than they would be in their home countries, they're still being treated at a much lower level, making much less money. And the benefits are accruing to the top. So you have even more deepening and widening of inequality, which I think we is not good for the country. Um, so you can't really do the open borders without thinking more about voting, about democracy, about labor laws, about environmental regulations, about housing. Like you can't just open the borders and it's all going to work out because these people will be so grateful to be here and we can treat them however, because it's all, at least it's better than where they came from. I think you have to think more deliberately about how you treat immigrants. Right. So I say thinking deliberately about how we treat immigrants is what we do now. And that's a lot of why we hardly let any in. Right. So right now, every person we're letting in, there's hand wringing like, oh, my God, well, could there possibly be, be this problem? Could there be that problem? Will they be treated well? Will, 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 there, will there be environmental effects? Will the labor, are the labor laws suitable? And when you do it that way, you let hardly any people in and you forfeit these enormous gains. On the other hand, when you just say, no, 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 immigration's great and these other problems are just not very important by comparison to the enormous benefits, and we're just going to go and let them in and deal with the problems as they come, probably inadequately, but that's okay because letting people move from poor countries to rich countries is so tremendously beneficial for them and the world. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But let's talk about the other form of increasing population, <laughs> which, is, which is having babies. And you are very vocal on, on this subject, that having babies is, is like something which, again, giving the argument, why should we all be doing it and all be doing it more than we are right now? Right. So I just want to be careful. So when I say I'm vocal, I'm always vocal in telling people reasons why that I think they've overlooked. I'm not vocal in getting on people's case. So none of this is about <laughs> nagging people. Rather, it's about saying that there is a great neglected opportunity. So, I mean, just, just to back up. So, you know, like, you know, so my first two kids are identical twins. And I actually, I'd already been reading a lot of research on twins before I even knew that I was going to be the father of twins. But definitely once I had them, I really started thinking about the meaning of the research day and night. And again, what this research says is that when you go and use these methods of studying either you know, people, either comparing identical fraternal twins, or you can also go and look at kids that are adopted. When you, do, when you go and study them, you realize that actually the long-run effects of parenting are a lot smaller than people think. You mean negative? Yes. Uh, you know, positive and negative, actually. Positive and negative. So getting adopted by a really rich home actually does not have much effect on your adult income. Being adopted but it has by, a big effect on parents, right? Ah. So, well, let me, let me, let me get to that. 
But, but any, anyway, so, you know, like, you know, there's just a lot of work saying that the, the, the family that raises you has a much smaller effect on how you turn out than you think. And then when I looked around at the parenting style that was being used around me, I saw that the number one by far is this extreme helicopter parenting where the parents are basically giving up almost everything else that they enjoy in life in order to benefit their kids and invest in them for their future. And I'm thinking, well, gee, according to this research, this investment does not actually pay and you are suffering needlessly. And then when I talk to people about having more kids, their usual reaction is, well, look, I'm so exhausted. I'm so miserable, so overburdened with the kids I have. I can't think about having any others. And then I'm like, well, why not just have, you know, do less? I'm like, no, no, I can't. I'm, you must do everything that parents today are doing. And really the heart of my book is to say, look, the science says otherwise. It is not true that parents have to make themselves miserable in order to be decent parents and give their kids a good future. So step one, obviously, is stop doing things that really make you miserable, especially if the kid doesn't like them. But step two, and this is the genesis of the whole idea, is once you have reformulated your parenting to get rid of so much needless unhappiness, then and then, uh, then it is time to reconsider the number of kids you want to have. Right. So, I mean, like around the time that a bo- the book, I, a book came out, there was this op ed on the theme of soccer as contraception. And it was basically a mom saying, well, yeah, we had three, two kids. They're already in soccer. We're spending our lives on these soccer games, soccer practices. We're thinking about having a third one. This is, wait, if we had a third one, there'd be three sets of soccer practices, three sets of games. We can't do it. And then she said, well, maybe we could just have a third kid and not have him do soccer. And I said, no, crazy. That will lead to total disaster. We know kids must have soccer or else they will be losers. And I'm just really reversing this reasoning and saying, since it's just not true that your kid needs to do these things in order to have a good future, then kids that you think of right now as being too burdensome really actually could be a great benefit to you. And, you know, like I'm just putting this out there as an opportunity. I mean, is it one reason the birth rate in the United States is declining? I don't think has to do with the burden of helicopter parenting. I mean, some of it is the availability of birth control. Another thing is just the economic hardship of having children. I mean, I think it's like what Felix, you said in your newsletter, it's like $250,000 from zero to 18. That doesn't even take into account college. Plus we're talking about families in which um, both parents are working. So there's like, there are time constraints, plus there's no support for parents in the United, there's very little support for parents in the United States who to have children. And there's just not a lot of incentive to have children basically economic incentives like it's fine to give up soccer practice but like if there's no maternity leave if there's no you know help for child care it's it's a very big economic investment to have a child and and a lot of american families just can't afford to have as many kids as they used to be because they're an economic drain whereas like in the past you know you put them to work on the farm or something and it's all good so two things first of all suppose everything you said is true still if my thing is also true that's a reason to reconsider. And that's almost the whole point of my book is just saying, look, there is some science out there that says that the investments that you're making in your kids are are a lot less fruitful and important than you imagine. And so you can give yourself a break. And once you give yourself a break, you can rethink what you're doing. So, I mean, you know, that's, you know, for me, you can't, I mean, like Emily's point is if if you have, if you have two parents who are working Mm -hmm. and you have kids who cannot, who are not old enough to look after themselves, someone needs to look after Mm -hmm. those kids. Yeah, Yeah. But we already knew that. So again, like to me, I like figure like people already know a bunch of things. They already know that kids cost money. They already know that that kids don't feed themselves. 
and I'm fine. And if someone says, look, I don't want to have any, I don't want any more kids or any kids at all because of that. And I don't care what else you say. Then I'll say, fine. Then like, that's, that's cool. But on the other hand, if someone says I have all these problems, plus I also know that if I don't go and do all these things for my kids, it will end in a disaster. That's where I'll say, well, that part is wrong. And by the way, of course, a lot of what, what's going on with parenting is, and the real reason why people are spending so much money is not the kids actually cost that much. It's because of a theory. Parents have a theory that they need to spend that money in order to give their kid a leg up. They need to go and pay for private school. They need to go and pay for them to I have mean, special coaches yeah, and so on. That's and I'm nice. I mean, that's, that's, that's all, true for the yeah. middle class and the upper middle mm-hmm. class. That um, And we just had a guest on who, of course, I forgot his name again. Felix. Daniel Markovitz. Thank you. Who argued that the elites spend a lot of money on their kids on things that they don't necessarily need. But the the fact is that what costs money about having children isn't these, you know, soccer practices or tutoring. It's health care and housing and child care. And, and those aren't optional things. Right. So, again, here I'm just going to think, no, not this isn't even like an economist. This is just like a salesman. Right. Like you, you have five complaints about a product. And I say, look, two of them are wrong. Here's why. And then and then you could either say, well, either you say the first three complaints are still so severe that I that I'm not interested. Well, the first three are big. Yes. Right? Well, yeah, I want to. Yes. Yeah, I just want to point out something here. So like one and I'll say I, I, I agree that I think that, yes, if you're talking about upper middle class and wealthy parents. Yeah, I do think they're the parenting right. culture that we have makes very little sense. And, and, it and of course, makes no economic the sense. Birth rates. Yeah. And, and I mm-hmm. but yes, but let's also true. just I'm sorry, like the elephant of the room here is that like women have babies. It's it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing physically. It's if the period of time when you are dealing with an infant is very challenging when they're from essentially like zero to well 18, but especially like a zero to seven. I mean, like and we can talk about a fantasy world where this is split evenly, but as long as women are still having the babies, I think that that's unlikely to happen. So part of the reason that women tend to have fewer children when they have access to education and contraception is because this is a burden on them. Right. Hasn't, isn't there a revealed hit, a preference on the part hit. of on the part of women to have fewer babies that when they have access to birth control, when they have access to education, when they have more control over how many babies they have, they have fewer of them. And this is clearly, as I say, a revealed preference. And you're saying what about that? What I'm saying about this is you know, for everything you're saying could be true. And yet does not go to my point. I mean, think about this. You know, I, I could be someone going around passing out coupons for 25% off for chocolate. And then you say, look, but chocolate still makes you fat and I don't like the taste and or the, like there's so other things ca- that I is enjoy. your case just yes. the like we marginally spend too much money on kids yes. and, and money and time and, 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 and just also just making the process not very fun by turning it into this chore. So, yeah. So, again, like, you know, like, you know, I'm not someone that would ever go and tell someone you have to have kids and I'm not a nagger. Rather, I'm someone who likes to show people opportunities. I think of my book as like a 25% off the price of kids coupon. So what's, so what's the and, upside? Like, you know, like we, let's say that you, mm-hmm. you've persuaded me that some of the downsides in terms of soccer practice in private schools, I can, I can lose without any real damage. What's the, what's the actual upside for me to have more babies? Well, of course, the companionship. Yeah. So, I mean, like if someone says, what's the upside of chocolate? So you don't still like chocolate? No. Well, then I then coupons are not going to be helpful. Similarly, if you look at kids and you just go, yuck, little rugrats, then yeah, what I'm saying is not relevant for you personally. However, most people don't feel that way. Most people actually do enjoy kids. If not kids in general, then their own kids, right? Even misanthropes will say, I hate kids, not my own. I like my kids. 
right? So yeah, I mean, if someone that doesn't really find that very appealing, then you know, like we we can just amicably agree to disagree. But on the other hand, if you're someone saying I do like kids, but one more just seems really hard, this is where I'll say, well, like it's really hard doing it the way that most people are doing it now, but it doesn't have to be hard. It's not the kid's fault. Rather, it's the fault of a theory of parenting that behavioral genetics has shown us to actually be incorrect. So just one last thing I want to just point out is also that when you're talking about women and especially like if you're having multiple, multiple kids, you're talking about those years when they're not going to be able to work. Women are not going to be able to work or work as much because it is. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of women don't have this choice, but the women who do have this choice, I mean, it is very challenging, especially when you're dealing with like an infant to also be working full time. So I think when you're talking about what are some of the downsides, I mean, for, for a lot of women, I mean, that is definitely a consideration. Yeah, of course, of course. It's but, a know, big I mean, opportunity. Yes, yeah, so right? I mean, I'd say, you know, but you know, this is this is just already well known, so you don't need me to go and remind you of it. I mean, what I would say is that I mean, you know, like, you know I'll, I'd say you know, mo- precisely because moms do do the lion's share of the work and the lion's share of the taking the kids to practices, and the lion's share of going to the games, and the lion's share of nagging them. Uh, you know, like you know, my message should be especially appealing to women because it's really it really is saying that you can cut back on a lot of the things you don't like doing and still be a great mom. But those aren't the things that are keeping women from having babies. There's a lot of things that keep a lot of people. So, yeah, you know, like, you know like, I'm an economist. You have to think at the margin. Just from, you know, remove one burden, remove two burdens, remove five burdens. And a lot of people say it doesn't change anything. But then there's the marginal people who say that it does. I mean, I've had at least 100 people say that they've had an additional child because of my book. And they seem to be happy with it. My favorite is there is a YouTube video of – a dad with his daughter thanking me for convincing him to have her, which uh, I have to say puts a giant smile on my face. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's let's talk about what happens after the kids graduate from high school. Because this, <laughs> this is the other big idea, the well, book that you wrote, should we do we massively overestimate the value and utility of tertiary education? Well, there's two different kinds of value. There's the value to the individual student and there's the value to society. So what I say is that we definitely massively uh, massively overstate the value to society. You know why? So because you know, most of what you actually learn in school is not going to be useful in real life. Uh, most of what you study is just not relevant to the real world. And the reason why it's so important to go and get a degree is not because you're actually getting useful skills. It's really a kind of rat race. Uh, you know, like you know, what we have is uh, you know severe credential inflation, where the more degrees the people have, the more that you need in order to be considered employable. Uh, you know, for individuals, it's a lot more complicated. So you know, individuals, like I'm not someone who says that you can just skip college and get a great job. That's quite actually quite hard to do. But what I say is that we've created a system where. We have encouraged education so much that you really have to do it in order just to, uh, you know, in, or, in order to get the same job that your parents or grandparents could have gotten uh, right out of high school. So going back to the immigration debate, is it not the case that the most desirable 
countries that people want to immigrate to tend to be the countries with the highest degrees of university education. There is something Mm -hmm. about having a lot of university education that seems to make countries better and more attractive. Well, I think a better way of putting it is that rich countries have a lot of education, but the rich countries have a lot of stuff. They've got a lot of skiing. They've got a lot of really nice hotels. They have more cable stations. So the question of what's the direction of the causation? Is it that being rich leads countries to go and spend a lot on education or is it the education actually makes them rich? Uh, There's been an enormous amount of research on this, most of it by people who desperately want to find out that education does make countries rich. So in development economics and the standard result among the people who looked at the numbers is they come away shell shocked. Like, I can't understand it. The data don't tell us the answer that we know has got to be true. Uh, so in my book, I go over like, you know, a lot of the effort just, well, we got to get better data. And then the better data is, does it give it doesn't give the right answer. And then finally, there's the thing where you say, okay, we got eight different data sets. One of them says education's pretty good. That must be the good data set. But why? It really is just circular reasoning. So, again, I'd say it's not so surprising that education doesn't seem to do very much for economic growth when you look at how irrelevant most of what people learn in school actually is to real life. And then, of course, uh, especially in poor countries, there's a further problem of a lot of times teachers don't even show up and teach basic reading and writing. So you can throw more money at the problem. But if the students don't wind up learning more, it's not going to be helpful for making your country develop. Why would you value education simply in terms of economic growth, though? I mean, obviously, there's more benefits to an educated population than simply economic growth. I would think it's one of the more robust features of a healthy democracy to have an educated populace. Right. So I would not say that I value it exclusively. I will say that the economic benefits are the most popular argument. It's the argument that you're most likely to get from parents, from teachers, from politicians. It would be very unusual to hear a politician say, look, we all know that education doesn't help economic growth, but who cares about economics? Let's go and talk about these other benefits. So well, that, was say, actually, yes. <laughs> that was actually the argument that I heard a lot when I was growing up was that it was just important on a personal and on a civic level to be able to learn to think you know, mm-hmm. coherently, much more than like a utilitarian argument of if you don't go to university, you won't make lots of money. Right. So you may have been in a post-materialist family where they didn't worry <laughs> about these things very much. Although I suspect that if you appeared to be deaf to these appeals, then they might have taken out the big guns and say, do you want to go and, and work at the post office? I don't think so. So in that case, Felix, you better buckle down. But, you know, so I do have a chapter in the book where I go over these other broader benefits. And what I say is that, Again, when you calm down and you don't just take into good intentions for uh, – don't confuse good intentions with results, you see that these effects too, either they're very hard to find or they're just a lot smaller than people normally think. Are they not well, clearly defined I, I, effects? So like, very narrowly, the more that girls get educated, the less likely they are to get pregnant before the age of like 14 or 15. But that's and, not the mm-hmm. outcome he wants. <laughs> um, <laughs> Again, you're like, like I'm not crazy. You know, look, like, like I'm, I'm not. I'm not I'm okay, really everyone, just, just yes. like you know, breaking. Yes, I'm, I'm not promoting pregnancy of 14 year olds or any, anything <laughs> weird like that. So, you know, what I would say is that I in turn, you know, so in terms of the clearest effects of education, I think you're right. So it is clear. So I think like like out of all the ones where you just really tried to go and and double check that it's not that that the causation is genuinely going from the education to the thing you're concerned about. The effect of education on fertility, that is one where I think it's it's among the most solid. 
Although, again, not when we're not just talking about teen pregnancy, but we're just talking about the number of children that people have in general, then again, I'd say this requires a really hard philosophical question about the meaning of human life and whether it's worthwhile existing and whether another person uh, worth, uh, worthwhile for another person to exist. So, you know, if someone like, like I, I do think that there there is at least you know, convincing evidence that you can get your birth rate down just by having people spend more time in school. And again, especially women spend more time in school. Although once you're at the level where people are having a small number of kids in their 20s, then to my mind, this is at least raises questions. Well, gee, that seems like a bad thing about school if it's leading to fewer people being around to enjoy enjoy being alive. So I I think I completely agree with you about the idea that we have degree inflation, about the idea that we have this model of education that we haven't updated in a, in a very, very, very long time. Yeah, about a thousand but, years. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's fair. And then, it, well, monastic and then the industrial model, right? But I also think it also gets into what we mean when we say education, right? Because I think there's actually a decent amount of evidence to show that a lot of countries where, as you said, you have instances where teachers don't show up or you have very low levels of literacy or numeracy, that that is a that really does hurt the ability of that country to develop. And I also think it is certainly true that it's not just a matter of education, because if you're not creating jobs for college graduates, then just having a bunch of college graduates doesn't necessarily do anything. I think that that's also true. But I, I, I would also say, so one, I think when you're talking about kind of elementary and secondary education, I think there's a tremendous benefit to that. And then when you're talking about tertiary education, I mean, I think that there's also something to the fact that we find that people who are more educated tend to be less sexist, less racist. They tend to have a better understanding of how the world – I'm not saying that people don't have education or don't know anything. I'm certainly not saying that, but I'm just saying that there are definitely benefits that I think, Emily, you mentioned to having – a populace who has a background in certain fields that might not be the most useful in terms of day to day, but are still overall useful in their lives. Yeah, a, a population who can analyze. I mean, everyone has to vote theoretically, and it's wouldn't good that be to glory? I would love to live in Australia <laughs> where everyone has to vote. Yeah, it would be good to have you know a democracy in which people were relatively well educated and they can make actually sound reason judgments when they go into the voting booth. Otherwise, you wind up with the situation we're in now. Uh, let's have a numbers round, Brian. You brought a number with you. Yep, um, just you know, ninety trillion dollars a year. That is a rough estimate of how much we could the world, how much richer the world would be if, under open borders. So I'll go with that. Ninety trillion, ninety T. Anna, do you have a number? I do. My number is fifteen percent. This is a UN estimate of the percent of the population of Venezuela that will have left um, in this particular crisis uh, as of two thousand, the end of 2019, the estimate is 15% of the population. It's uh, It really is a massive refugee crisis that I don't think that part of the Venezuela story gets enough coverage. I, I have a really silly one, but I thought it was fun, so I'm going to come out with it anyway. I decided to do a Twitter poll, um, <laughs> which is the most scientific form of poll. Absolutely. And, and so, but I feel like this one is actually probably understates the truth. I did a poll. I said, how often do you wear the same shoes that you wore yesterday? <laughs> Less than half the time, most of the time, or nearly always. And my number is 42% is the winner of the poll. 42% said nearly always. And if you add up the people who say they wore the same shoes that they wore yesterday most of the time, the combined total comes to 81%. So, yeah, like people really care about like which shoes 
to choose when they're sort of buying shoes. But in practice, you just put, wear whatever shoes you wore yesterday. Right. But it's really important you pick the right ones if you're going to wear them every day, though. Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, Emily. My number is $10.23. That is the Canadian dollar cost of a gram of legal marijuana. Now, that's in contrast to $5.59 for a gram of black market marijuana. This is from a Bloomberg story on how black market marijuana is cheaper than legal marijuana, which I just think is pretty interesting with the legal I, stuff. I just got back from California and it astonishes me to see what's happened in California since <laughs> legalization of marijuana. There was this almost universal unexamined assumption when they legalized marijuana in California that overnight everyone would just start using okay. legal marijuana rather than illegal marijuana and right, all of exactly. that money that had previously been spent on illegal marijuana would that thenceforth be spent on legal marijuana of course it didn't happen that way at all and the vast majority well not the vast majority but the majority of money and certainly the majority of marijuana consumed in california remains illegal and it's and that has had very consequential effects in terms of just how the legalization experiment has played out. Yes, um, and I also read in the U.S., I guess black market marijuana overall is, is about 10% cheaper than the legal stuff. And I, maybe it has to do with the way legalization has rolled out, which has been super spotty, right? But it's, it's it certainly really seems legal to be, it certainly seems yeah. to be the case that black market vapes are the ones which have been causing most of the vaping right, deaths. Right. So it's cheaper and more harmful. Uh, on, on which... A narcotic note we are going to bring, <laughs> wrap up this episode of uh, Slate Money. Brian, thank you so much for coming in. It was awesome to have you here. Thanks great, great to pleasure. Jessamine Molly for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. And one more thing. We have a message for Nick Barker. Uh, Nick, your girlfriend, Sarah Margaret, sent us an email saying that you're both big fans of the show. So we just wanted to wish you a very happy 39th birthday this December 3rd. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.